Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. We're starting today with a case we already discussed back in episode 10 when we were exploring the contested boundaries between the institutions of the federal government. The case was Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer, the 1952 case about President Harry Truman's executive order to seize the nation's steel mills. But today we're looking at it from the perspective of the dissenters in the case, with an eye toward the question of executive power as it's exercised, as it often is, through the power of the pen by executive orders, presidential proclamations, directives, and commands. What authority does the president have here? What are the constitutional limits of that authority? Let's dig into Youngstown one more time, but from this different angle. Recall that Harry Truman issued Executive Order 10340 during the middle of the Korean War, and the order said this, By virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and laws of the United States and as President and Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of the United States, It is hereby ordered as follows, and then what follows is an authorization of the Secretary of Commerce to take possession and operate the steel plants listed in the order. And one of those steel plants is Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company in Youngstown, Ohio. The constitutional question is whether the Secretary of Commerce can just seize and operate private steel mills at the president's order. And the Supreme Court's answer in the case is no. In the majority opinion written by Hugo Black, the Supreme Court held that this order amounted to an unconstitutional usurpation of legislative power. This decision to seize the steel mills was not a decision to be made by the president on his own authority, just to take over private businesses, determine prices and wages, bargain with representatives from the labor union. According to the Supreme Court, this was legislative in nature. But three justices dissented, and the interesting question is, why did three of the justices think that the president could do that with nothing more than an executive order? A dissenting opinion written by Chief Justice Fred Vinson, whom Truman had appointed to the Supreme Court and elevated to Chief Justice in 1946, made the case for the constitutionality of the order, and that opinion was signed by two others. Here's the logic of that dissent. According to Chief Justice Vinson, the power to seize private property for public use when the needs of the community demand it is a power that's inherent in the very idea of sovereignty. Every sovereign government, unless it has limited itself voluntarily, retains this inherent right that we call eminent domain to seize private property and put it to public use. The Constitution mentions the power of eminent domain only in one place, in the Fifth Amendment, ratified in 1791, which says only that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. The Fifth Amendment is written in the passive voice. It doesn't say Congress may not take private property or the president may not take private property, but instead says only, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. What inferences can we make from this parsing of the language? One is that the authors and ratifiers of the Fifth Amendment assumed the national government already had the power of eminent domain even prior to the passing of the Fifth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment doesn't create the power, but rather serves as a check on the abuse of that power. 
The majority opinion in Youngstown, written by Hugo Black, also assumed that that power did exist and that it existed in the national government. But the majority opinion held that it was legislative rather than executive, and that President Truman had no authority to write this executive order absent some enabling legislation from Congress. But the power of eminent domain is not mentioned anywhere else in the Constitution outside of the Fifth Amendment. It's not one of the enumerated powers of Congress. There's no clause anywhere that says Congress shall have the power of eminent domain. And as Chief Justice Vinson points out, at a time of national emergency, like a threatened union strike that would damage the nation's ability to fight a war, the president is the national officeholder most capable of action to meet the urgent need. In his opinion, Vinson writes that under the majority's view, the president is left powerless at the very moment when the need for action may be most pressing and when no one other than he is immediately capable of action. Under this view, he's left powerless because a power not expressly given to Congress is nevertheless found to rest exclusively with Congress. But Vinson offers an alternative way of interpreting the constitutional text. He says, look, the Constitution never gives this power to Congress, but we all agree that the power is inherent in what it means to be a sovereign nation. Could we not infer then from the Constitution that the power was left with the president as a necessary feature of his office and of his constitutional oath? As Vincent writes, we cannot but conclude that the president was performing his duty under the Constitution to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Faced with the duty of executing the defense programs which Congress had enacted and the disastrous effects that any stoppage in steel production would have had on those programs, the president acted to preserve those programs by seizing the steel mills. There's no question that the possession was other than temporary in character, subject to congressional direction either approving, disapproving, or regulating the manner in which the mills were to be administered and returned to the owners. Note here a subtle but important part of the debate. Vincent is saying that the president could, with no more than an executive order, with the stroke of his pen, authorize the Secretary of Commerce to seize and operate the nation's privately owned steel mills. And yet he also said that further action would be subject to congressional direction, approval or disapproval. Why? Presuming the Constitution brings into being a truly sovereign government, that government will have certain inherent powers that are not enumerated. But Congress will nonetheless have the power to write laws that are necessary and proper for their execution. But the power doesn't depend for its existence on Congress passing such laws in the first place. And in a time of crisis, it's the president whose oath of office demands that he take care that the laws are faithfully executed, who's capable of acting decisively and with the speed necessary to avert the crisis. This is the form of an argument for executive power that we've seen over and over again in American history. Perhaps the most famous example is Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus during the Civil War. The structure of Lincoln's argument looks quite similar to Vincent's and to Harry Truman's, but the different political contexts faced by Lincoln and Truman give us a different lens to evaluate the constitutional issues going on here. Lincoln came into office in 1861 with Civil War looming, and just a month after his inauguration, he issued an order to one of his generals, Winfield Scott, authorizing Scott to suspend the writ of habeas corpus if he deemed it necessary. In Latin, habeas corpus means you have or hold the body, and it's a legal order, by a judge to bring someone in your custody to court so that the court may determine whether the person's being lawfully detained. It's a way of protecting our liberty from arbitrary arrests and detainments. Here's where the controversy looks similar to what was going on in Youngstown. The Constitution mentions habeas corpus only once, and it's in the passive voice. 
Article 1, Section 9 says, quote, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety requires it. The Constitution's writers assumed here that there would be a legal privilege of habeas corpus, and that would apply to the new government they were creating, even though the Constitution never says that exactly. And they also assumed that there would be times of crisis, rebellion or invasion, when the public safety would require that habeas corpus be suspended. There would, in other words, be circumstances that justified detaining someone and preventing them from having recourse to a court of law to determine whether they were being lawfully detained. This is what Abraham Lincoln ordered in April of 1861. Can a president do that with just his pen, just write a note to a general in the field and tell the general he can suspend habeas corpus? The power to suspend habeas corpus isn't one of the enumerated powers of Congress. And as Lincoln argued at the time, the Constitution doesn't say whether this is a power of Congress or of the president. But as the provision was plainly made for a dangerous emergency, Lincoln said, it can't be believed that the framers of the instrument intended that in every case the danger should run its course until Congress could be called together, the very assembling of which might be prevented, as was intended in this case, by the rebellion. There's a certain logic here for Lincoln that saw suspension during crisis as a necessary part of sovereignty and the presidency as the office in which that power could be adequately exercised to meet the crisis. If the crisis prevented Congress from meeting then Congress couldn't suspend habeas corpus. But the president would be in charge of averting the crisis at that moment. Could it be that the president doesn't have the power to suspend habeas on his own? That's Lincoln's argument. Then, in fact, Congress was out of session when Lincoln suspended habeas corpus. So what happens next? In a federal court case called Ex Parte Merriman, coming out of the state of Maryland, the court held that the president did not have the authority to suspend habeas corpus and the power resided in Congress alone. But Lincoln ignored the court's decision, and Congress soon included language in a bill approving the president's action. And in 1863, Congress actually passed the Habeas Suspension Act, saying, quote, During the present rebellion, the president of the United States, whenever in his judgment the public safety may require it, is authorized to suspend the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus in any case throughout the United States. Justice Jackson's concurring opinion in Youngstown provides a lens here for us to view these different outcomes between Lincoln and Truman. Recall that Jackson said presidential power was at its zenith when the president acted with the support of Congress, and it was at its lowest ebb when it worked against the express will of Congress. Lincoln worked with Congress's full support. Truman, on the other hand, was on his own. But Jackson's own analysis could be turned on the court as well. When the court labored against Lincoln and Congress together, the court's power was at its lowest ebb. There wasn't much the Supreme Court could do to prevent the president with Congress's blessing from suspending habeas corpus. Now, these two examples from Lincoln and from Truman raise for us a fundamental question that we're only able to scratch the surface on. What powers are inherent in the sovereign government of the United States? And which of these powers would be appropriate for the president in fulfilling his oath of office to exercise, and exercise often with nothing more than a pen, by the mere signing of an executive order or a proclamation? Let me conclude with just one more example of a case that challenges us to think about the powers inherent in any sovereign nation, and powers that might be exercised unilaterally by a president. This example comes again from Lincoln and the Civil War. 
after his inauguration and during the same time in which Congress was not in session and Lincoln authorized General Scott to suspend habeas corpus, Lincoln also instituted a blockade of southern ports, commanding the United States Navy to prevent ships from going in or coming out. And he did this simply as a presidential proclamation. On the 19th of April, 1861, Lincoln proclaimed that an insurrection had broken out in the states of South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. And he claimed that the laws of the United States as to the collection of revenue in ports in those states were not being enforced, and that United States citizens were not being protected in those port cities. Under his duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, then Lincoln ordered a blockade of those ports, quote, until Congress shall have assembled and deliberated on the unlawful proceedings of the insurrectionists in those port cities. When Congress did meet that summer, they passed legislation supporting the president's blockade. But in the interim time between April and Congress's session that summer, the United States Navy had seized several ships for violating the blockade, and the Navy confiscated the ship's cargo in what international law called a prize, which is a legal capture at sea during wartime. Then a court would sort out where the property of the prize goes that has been seized, and these are called prize cases. Well, some of the owners of the ships that had been seized sued to regain the possession of their cargo and their ships, arguing that the president didn't have the authority to order the blockade of the southern ports by a mere proclamation. And they argued that the president couldn't just order the Navy to engage in a blockade and seize people's property. When their cases came to the Supreme Court in 1862, they're called the prize cases. And in the prize cases, a divided court sided with the president upholding the southern blockade by presidential proclamation. There are two aspects of this case that I want to focus on here. First, blockades are tools of war, but Congress had not declared war against the southern states. And if Congress had declared war, it would have been self-defeating anyway, because it would have acknowledged the Confederate states as a foreign nation, which is exactly what the Confederate states were fighting to achieve. And second, there was an insurrection, and the insurrection meant civil war. There was a war in fact, even if there was and really couldn't be a war declared by Congress. Both of those points bring us to the question of the division of war powers under the Constitution. And here's what Justice Robert Greyer says about this for the court in the prize cases in 1862. By the Constitution, Congress alone has the power to declare a national or foreign war. It cannot declare war against a state or any number of states by virtue of any clause in the Constitution. The Constitution confers on the president the whole executive power. He's bound to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. He is commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States. According to Greyer, even though the president didn't have the power to declare war, he could, and actually was bound by his oath, to defend the community against threats, including using the military to defend against rebellion and foreign invasion. Listen again to Greyer as he writes, If war be made by invasion of a foreign nation, the president is not only authorized but bound to resist force by force. He does not initiate the war but is bound to accept the challenge without waiting for any special legislative authority. And whether the hostile party be a foreign invader or states organized in rebellion, it's nonetheless a war, although the declaration be unilateral. And in discharging his office, Greyer says the president must decide what is necessary. Whether the president, Greyer concludes, in fulfilling his duties as commander-in-chief in suppressing an insurrection has met with armed hostile resistance and a civil war of such alarming proportions as will compel him to accord them the character of belligerence 
is a question to be decided by him, and this court must be governed by the decisions and acts of the political departments of government to which this power was entrusted. And so the upshot for the owners of the ships looking to the court for redress is that they forfeit their ships and their cargo for violating a blockade imposed by presidential proclamation. But the upshot for us is that we're left with a puzzle about the division of power between Congress and the president when it comes to declaring and engaging in war. And so we'll pick up this thread in the next episode when we consider the contested legacy of the War Powers Resolution.